0: Welcome to Great Ideas. We're broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson. And today, what does it mean to invest in infrastructure? President Biden has proposed a multi-trillion dollar bill that's being called an infrastructure bill, and maybe it is, but it's prompted a lot of questions that are surprisingly basic and yet surprisingly not that simple. What is an economic investment? what is infrastructure, and what is the role of government to invest in the kinds of things that help the economy in the future. To walk us through all of that, we're very lucky to have back on our show Tori Gorman, the policy director for the Concord Coalition, a nonpartisan organization dedicated to educating the public about the relationship between how the federal government spends money and the consequences for the future. She was also our expert on our show on reconciliation, which you may have heard. And if you haven't yet, check it out in the Great Ideas podcast stream. It is truly excellent. But also on this topic, really no one better to walk us through the kinds of consequences and future looking ramifications of government spending and investment than Tori Gorman. Tori, welcome back.
1: Matt, thanks so much for having me today. I have to say it's 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 interesting to have a subject change. I, I spent a lot of time talking about entitlement programs and interest on the debt, it's nice to kind of talk about something different for once. It's it's different. And yet it
0: strikes me that it's part of the same vein. It's part of what the Concord Coalition is all about. What you guys spend all your time thinking about is the relationship between what the government spends on today and where our, our economy, our, our budget, and our society will be in the future you're one of the few organizations that really thinks about the future and that's ultimately what this bill and this topic is all about but let's let's start with some of the basics here Mm -hmm. what is infrastructure what's it generally thought to be Mm -hmm. and how does the biden proposal define it is it defined in sort of the way it's
1: generally understood Sure. For such a simple question, you'd think there would be a simple answer, but there really isn't. Believe it or not, there really is no legal or economic definition of infrastructure. Basically, it's just tradition. In the past, infrastructure has referred to what we call long-lived capital investment projects, things like roads and bridges, mass transit, drinking water systems energy generating plants, dams, power plants, wind farms, telecommunications. But believe it or not, the debate over what is and isn't infrastructure isn't new. I mean, we've obviously got a new new debate now, but this debate is actually a century old. Back in the New Deal era, in in, in preparing for the show, I was reading about how during consideration of the Tennessee Valley Authority, lawmakers sparred over whether or not universal access to electricity was infrastructure. Plus, the concept of infrastructure has become more nebulous with the emergence of two new categories. Now we talk about critical infrastructure, systems that are vulnerable, for example, to terrorist attack, either through physical damage or cyber attacks, or that are vulnerable to natural disasters. Think of things like chemical facilities, critical manufacturing, the defense industrial base, and financial services, right? We wanna be able to put our ATM in the car, in the machine, ATM card in the machine every day, but also the emergence of green infrastructure, investments that are needed to combat climate change, global warming, and, and things that are environmentally friendly, things like wind and solar production, carbon sequestration, stormwater management, et cetera. And now with the Biden proposal, we're talking about an even broader definition. He has introduced the concept of human infrastructure, paying for things like education, job training, child and senior care, affordable housing. So I think uh, it's time to stop thinking about infrastructure as one sort of monolithic definition and see it more as a spectrum of things. And then the role of lawmakers is to figure out what is the role for government at all levels federal, state, local, and where that role starts and stops.
0: That's interesting. It sounds like there is a rich history of an evolution of how we think about what's the stuff that we need to build to make our economy and our society go. And obviously, there is that very rich history when it comes to issues like electrification. This is how Lyndon Johnson kind of got started. He was offered the role in FDR's New Deal of leading the rural electrification program, which was one of the great successes in American government financial investment, economic investment history. So I wanted to ask you about that history because another question that's come up beyond the, well, what is infrastructure anyway, is, okay, if we can agree that it's kind of a fungible nebulous definition, should the federal government be the ones investing in it? So, As you thought about this question, where did that lead you? How much of America's infrastructure investment is something that the federal government has historically undertaken and sort of should be undertaking?
1: Right. So in the past, the federal government's role has been relegated largely to transportation projects and water infrastructure, again, highways, public transit and railways, aviation water resources, water transportation, think ferries, um, and water utilities. According to the Congressional Budget Office in 2017, which I realize that's a little dated, but it's the most recent aggregated data point I could find, the federal government spent about $84 billion on transportation infrastructure and about $10 billion on water resources. So pretty much close to $100 billion on the traditional definition of infrastructure. And that was either by making direct investments or uh, grants in the form of grants or in the form of, of loan subsidies, and as well as capital investments versus just paying for operations and maintenance. And to give you a context for that kind of spending, the, the, the transportation spending in 2017 about, amounted to about one quarter of all outlays on highways that year. So the federal government con- constituted about 25% of all highway spending that year meaning that the other 75% was picked up by state and local governments and private entities. Investment in energy and telecommunications infrastructure has largely come from the private sector, and they're the ones that that own those entities. Think of things like oil pipelines, natural gas transmission and distribution systems, fiber optic uh, networks that are all overwhelmingly privately owned. Federal involvement, such as the construction of federally owned hydroelectric projects and grants to support the, the deployment of broadband in rural communities, that only accounts for a very small portion of total investment in those sectors.
0: Got it. So it sounds like there's a role here, the federal government, but it can vary. The federal government can take a, a, a very strong hand, or it can be sort of a, a guiding uh, light along the way, but the role is fulfilled by smaller governments, state, local, and the private sector. Mm-hmm. So why do we bother? I mean, that's that's sort of the big question here, and it it's sort of gets into the wheelhouse of your deep expertise, is that relationship between why the stuff we do and, and the output that we hope to get from it. So what, in theory, is the economic case for doing all this stuff why do we want the federal government doing all this stuff in terms of the future of the economy
1: so we know that obviously the goal of any economy is to grow right when an economy grows it creates wealth okay so here in the united states our economic growth is largely constrained by two factors the size of our labor force and the productivity of those workers. And economic studies prove that infrastructure helps enhance productivity. Workers can get to work safely and on time because of transportation infrastructure investments. Your office building has reliable power to run computers and provide ambient light and provide comfortable room temperatures, which helps workers work better, faster, and longer. Workplaces have running water so employees don't have to run home to use (laughs) the restroom at lunch. Trunks, excuse me, trucks and trains and airplanes can move products between users in different states because of our national interstate highway system, which is a heck of a lot faster than the Stagecoach Express from long ago. So, I mean, fiber optic cable, it has more bandwidth than a telephone line and allows your computer to work uh, faster. Cellular towers, you know, they allow us to use GPS when we're lost and, and help us talk to others when we're away from our home from work. All of these things help us be more productive citizens, help our economy grow, grow faster, grow bigger, which in turn creates wealth. And that's why infrastructure investment is, is a, a noble concept.
0: And let me just read back what I was hearing there a little bit is that it, it's awfully hard for the federal government to deal with the supply of labor, how many people we have. In fact, in our competition with China, our economic competitiveness against India, one of the issues that comes up is they've got a lot more people. They've got about four times more people than we do, which means they can produce a lot more stuff. And in theory, as George W. Bush said, they can make the pie higher. They can produce more stuff and they can generate more wealth to go around. Right. But what we can control a little bit is how productive that supply of labor is. So the theory behind investing in however you define infrastructure, mm-hmm. the theory behind government investments should be that we're going to make the most out of what we've got. We're going to we're going to allow our people to create the most stuff, create the most output generate the most wealth and general welfare to spread around the citizens of our country.
1: Right. Is that right? Yeah. And to help them be their creative selves. You know, all of these things, for example, they spur entrepreneurship, creative thinking, you know, new technologies, you know, all of it. Exactly.
0: So does it work? I guess is 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 the immediate question that springs to mind. Mm -hmm. It's it's is there any evidence? that the kinds of investments that the federal government makes in infrastructure are economically valuable in the future, that they do lead us to be more economically productive. And do we all benefit from them equally?
1: Mm -hmm. I think the devil is always in the details, right? You take a look at something like the national interstate highway system, Clearly, that was a boon to the economy and a boon to interstate commerce and a real linchpin in in the United States economic growth and development. You look at something like Denver International Airport, okay, that has been hugely successful for that area in terms of lowering both industry and tourism. But then for every example that you can find where there's been positive in government-funded infrastructure. You can also find projects where things didn't go so well. I think everybody likes to pull out the favorite example of Alaska's bridge to nowhere. You know, the three had the, uh, the, almost $400 million in, in federal taxpayer money that was earmarked to build the Gravina Island Bridge uh, near Ketchikan, Alaska. And it basically connected, it was supposed to replace a ferry that went back and forth between Gravina Island, which happened to have their little international airport and about 50 people living there. And, you know after that was sort of exposed they eventually uh, canceled the, the the federal funding but it's definitely a cautionary tale one of the things that you need to be wary of when thinking about government involvement in infrastructure investment is a undue political influence directing federal monies to projects um, that don't actually have a lot of bang for their buck and but then also the impact on, on crowding out the more the federal government Borrows money, for example, if these projects are not are, are not paid for with, with offsets elsewhere, and we just borrow money to, to build them, you know, there's going to be an impact on interest rates at some point, which creates out private sector investment. And that's not a good thing. It
0: sounds like the upshot of this is that not all investments are created equal. It's not the same thing to build. I'm going to give another example of a, of a famous wasteful government project. I believe that there was once a project to build a parking lot in the Lawrence Welk Museum. That was a, <laughs> an earmarked piece of funding by some ill-informed, sort of a woe member of Congress. It's not sufficient to just build stuff. That right. was sort of the idea, to some degree, behind some of the New Deal programs, which was you know, let's just put people to work. Let's put shovels in hands and just do stuff because it's better to have people working and to pay them for work. And there's a psychological impact. But in terms of what you're talking about, the future of the economy, how productive people will be in America with these sort of capital tools that we've given them, it's not all the same. You have to make intelligent choices about where you're putting federal resources, and it, it, it's it's not all equal.
1: No, exactly. You know, our 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 gross national debt right now is a twenty eight trillion, and it's growing rapidly. The portion of our debt that's held by the public, which must be repaid, about twenty two trillion, now equals one hundred two percent of our gross domestic product. And it's on the trajectory to double over the next 30 years, which is clearly an unsustainable path. So we do not have the fiscal resources to just throw taxpayer money willy-nilly at a variety of of, of projects. I I think when you look at history and you look at the projects that were were successful, they had some commonalities. and There was a degree of public welfare associated with them. You know that there was the, the project was somehow central to the basic functioning of society. A lot of these projects, for example, were were large and economies of scale were were beneficial. A lot of these projects had very positive externalities, to use an economic term, that were very pervasive.
0: Just define that. So what you mean? Well, I, I won't put words in your mouth. Uh, so externalities in this in this context means.
1: Well, basically in that others benefited from the project other than those for whom it was initially derived or paid for. Okay. So for example, Maryland drivers, you know, benefit when Virginia keeps its roads and bridges well maintained because there's a lot of interstate commerce, a lot of commuting traffic that goes back and forth between Maryland and Virginia. So it's 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 even though you know the Virginia Department of Transportation pays for the maintenance and up, upkeep of, of our of our roads and bridges, Marylanders benefit from it. So, but we can't exactly charge Marylanders to help pay for our roads and bridges. Maybe you know, a couple of our toll roads and stuff like that, but the interstates, we can't. So you can see how there's a role for government to get involved there. Because if you were to turn that into completely private, privately funded projects, the benefits of those investments will not necessarily accrue only to those people who pay for it. There are leakages. Those benefits leak out into the rest of society. So there's a role there then For federal government to help pay for those or any government.
0: Got it. So the private sector does pretty well when there's a pretty direct relationship between this is going to cost something and I'm the one who's going to pay those costs. Makes sense. Or there's a benefit to doing something and I'm going to get that benefit. Therefore, it's worthwhile for me to do. Mm -hmm. It gets a little fuzzy when some of those costs and benefits are spread more broadly. And that might be a, a time where it makes sense for government to get involved. Exactly. When else is it appropriate? When when does it make sense from an economic standpoint for the federal government to get hands in on investment mm-hmm. in infrastructure?
1: Sure. We know that infrastructure is highly correlated with economic growth. But we also know that there are some infrastructure projects because of the the size of and scope And the long payoff period is very long. They can be really risky investments, especially when you're talking about private money. And risk when you're talking about private money is a total buzz killer. So, and because some of these large scale, long lived projects have externalities that accrue to people that aren't your private financiers, there's a lot of wariness in investing. And so when you leave it up to just the private market to provide the necessary Investment in infrastructure, oftentimes you end up with a subpar uh, level of investment. It's what we call a, a market failure. Okay, so the market has failed to provide the optimal level of infrastructure investment. So in that, those scenarios, you can see how there is a role for of government, federal, state, or local, to to backstop or be a lender of last resort or to provide seed capital, you know, to, to jumpstart or, or fund, fully fund an infrastructure investment.
0: You mentioned to me, and I, I brought up a moment ago, the example of the New Deal, some of the programs that were underway there that just kind of put people to work. You brought up another example that I think illuminates a little bit of the, of the political debate here about whether it's more appropriate for the private sector or the public sector to get involved in these kinds of investments. What was that? It it had to do with the dam. What what, what was the example that you. Uh, So
1: there's this old anecdote and I'm not even sure if it's appropriately attributed to the right person, but the, 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 the old story that economists like to tell is one that involves Milton Friedman. One time, he was visiting China, and China was in the process of actually building a canal. And he was surprised to see that instead of, of modern tractors and earth movers, there were thousands of workers that were toiling away, building a canal with shovels. And he asked his host, who was a government bureaucrat at the time, why more machines weren't being used. And the bureaucrat replied, you, know, you don't understand. this is a jobs program. And Milton Friedman reportedly said, "Oh, I thought you were trying to build a canal. If it's jobs you want, then you should take away the shovels and give them spoons. So that that's sort of the, you know, the the, the perverse outcome that you can get to when you start thinking about infrastructure in terms of job creation. Rather than infrastructure in terms of enhancing economic productivity.
0: You were making a distinction between thinking about investments in infrastructure in terms of how many jobs can we create today versus maybe a more intelligent, more accurate way of thinking about what this kind of investment is all about. So that really gets to your idea of how should we be thinking about all these things? What is your idea?
1: So, understand, I come at this after decades of preaching about the need for fiscal responsibility. And as I spoke about earlier, we're up in debt up to our eyeballs. And I I acknowledge that economic growth is not going to solve the problem all by itself, but it certainly can help. And so, we need to think of ways to sustain higher levels of economic growth in the future than we have in the past. And as I talked about, you know, there are two determinants there, the size of our labor force and the productivity of our labor force, you know, and unless we're going to have a giant baby boom in in the next couple of years, and I don't see that happening. I mean, you've heard about the birth rates over COVID. They went in a direction I was not anticipating. So the only other tool in the growth toolbox is labor productivity. So perhaps now it's time to think about infrastructure through the lens of what will boost productivity the most, not necessarily as a way to create jobs. And I also think about it in terms of where we are right now in the economic recovery. By the time President Biden's infrastructure bill results in actual outlays, and let's suppose they pass this this year, year, by the time this money actually gets to the outlay process where we're putting checks in people's hands, the US economy is expected to be back at full employment in 18 to 24 months. So any new jobs that are created by infrastructure spending are really only gonna cannibalize workers from other industries. So the net new job growth itself is gonna be negligible. What we should instead do is invest our scarce federal resources in projects that punch above their weight in terms of productivity And then let the state and local governments and the private sector handle the rest. And so that's sort of where I'm coming at when I look at the Biden proposal.
0: And in a way, you're you're not only redefining the way to think about this in terms of not jobs, but productivity. You're Mm -hmm. also redefining time. You're sort of Taking us, you're suggesting we should look at this in a hot tub time machine, a DeLorean, and we should think not about, you know, the first COVID rescue bill was all about how do we create as many jobs and get people back to work now in 2021 and 2022. The focus here, when you think about infrastructure, is what economists call the long run. It's also what regular humans call the long run. It's where are we going to be in 8 years, in 10 years, and how economically competitive are we going to be then? Exactly. Spot on. So, so, let's let's take it right to the Biden infrastructure bill. And I think infrastructure it may be misleading people a little bit here because the Biden bill comes in four buckets. There's what's traditionally thought of as infrastructure, in it's, everyone agrees on this form, transportation infrastructure. There's about $600 billion in there for highways, bridges, roads, public transit, that kind of thing. There's another $650 billion in there for a category that straddles a little bit. There's things that, most people think of as infrastructure these days, like broadband, like the electric grid, like clean drinking water. Then there's things that stretch a little bit further, schools, affordable housing. Then you get to a third category, which is stretching even a little bit further from the traditional view of infrastructure, federally funded research and development, manufacturing capacity among small businesses, and workforce development, that human capital element. Then finally, you get to the fourth category, which I think is a a major stretch by Mm -hmm. anyone's imagination, which is caretaking for the elderly. So in terms of your definition, the lens through which you look at these kinds of investments in terms of productivity in the future, how do you evaluate how appropriate those four categories are in the Biden proposal?
1: Again, I I go back to where I think it's appropriate and it makes sense for the federal government to get involved in that there is a significant public welfare component and the investments are necessary to help the society function overall. You know, a lot of the, and, and where there are, you know, positive externalities that sort of leak beyond um, the initial payers. So that's where things like transportation infrastructure makes sense. Things like water, uh, safe drinking water makes sense. Given the dependence on our economy of, of technology and, and just doing our conducting our daily lives, that's where broadband and telecommunications make sense to me. But the more and more you get towards the type of Investment, and I use that in quotation marks, that have a more singular benefit. I think that's where things start to stretch credulity a little bit. Society benefits when we have an educated labor force, but whether or not I have childcare, you know, that benefits me. So I think that's when the, 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 the scope starts to narrow significantly that, that way, and the benefits start to accrue less in a, in a, in a more national or even a regional way, and they become more singular and personal. That's where I think the investments get problematic, and they're actually not necessarily investments. It's just social policy.
0: If I had to pick, if you were to say, put all the items in this bill and put them on an old fashioned number line. You remember when they used to teach arithmetic with number (laughs) lines, they still do. Yeah, yeah, right, you know, each step along the way. And you put the things that everyone can agree on, these are definitely infrastructure. And oh, by the way, politically, we all kind of agree on them too, Republicans and Democrats, things like roads. And then you went all the way along the number line to the biggest stretch, which is probably the long-term care aspect of the bill.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Right at the pivot point where it becomes ambiguous, I think is the provision to invest in federally funded research and development. And you alluded to it a moment ago. Now, warning, I'm gonna be up on a little bit of a soapbox here because I have a point of view about this. But I want you to evaluate it. And if I'm wrong, I want a real expert to tell me so. In my view, federal investment in R&D, it it totally fits the Tory Gorman definition. It is is definitionally forward-looking. It has massive payback in the future. It leads to economic productivity of our labor force in the future, and the benefits don't accrue to the original party doing the investment. They spill over to lots and lots of entities. Take, for example, the investments in sequencing the human genome undertaken by the federal government. There is a straight line connection from those investments, and Moderna and BioNTech, the companies that develop the vaccines that are going into people's arms today and that have made the founders of those companies individual billionaires. Mm -hmm. They're making billions of dollars. The original investments made long ago by federal officials at the National Institutes of Health, long gone, not even sure who those people are. Mm -hmm. So my pitch would be this should fit squarely in the definition of a productive economic purpose for the federal government look i'll do one more for you the whole moonshot program in today's dollars we spent about 283 billion dollars on that and it created the entire information technology revolution the world we live in in terms of computers the internet smartphones gps lasers everything else so that's my story Mm -hmm. does it wash for you does it hold any water
1: You know, yes. I mean, again, the devil's in the details. It depends on how you define, you know, research and development. I mean, I, I, again, I, I, I I think it just depends on, on, on your definition. I mean, I, I, I've seen, you know, grant money from, you know, the National Science Foundation and others that went to, you know, I'm I'm making this up, but I've seen things as silly as this is, you know, the, the mating, you know, routines of, of. Obscure birds and and insects and things like that. I'm not necessarily sure how that type of of, of research, scientific research, benefits you know the overall overall society. So, I, again, I think if you just keep sort of those key criteria in mind, there absolutely is is a, a spectrum of of research and development investment that is appropriate and necessary.
0: Let's go all the way to the far end of that number line and talk about the investment in the caretaking economy. Now, it's hard to dispute that there isn't a legitimate need here, given the aging of the population, the aging of the baby boom generation. We have a massive gap in our ability to provide care for aging Americans. And you can draw a nexus between the ability to provide high quality care and freeing up the productive capacity of the labor force who no longer has to provide that care at home. You're not caring for a family member. Instead, you are available to go work, which may be what you want to do for your own family. So definitely a personal benefit, but there is a nexus to a societal benefit that you can draw, but it's 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 a it's a far change. Heartburn. <laughs> yeah. So, what do you make of that item?
1: Well, again, I, I I don't I don't object to this national debate on the definition of infrastructure. I think it's healthy, and I think we'll we'll, we'll be better for it. But again, I, you know, we're talking about infrastructure investment and who is appropriate to invest where. Okay, is it appropriate for the federal government? To invest in the caring economy, probably not, but if you think about lower lower level, tertiary levels of government, state, maybe not appropriate, local government, unsure, private sector, potentially, okay? Is it it worthwhile for Amazon to set up childcare facility next to its warehouses for its employees? I know that military bases, for example, they all have childcare development centers on base so that their soldiers can drop their kids off at childcare and know that they're safe and close by and go off and go to work. Okay, so when you talk about these, these more narrowly targeted narrowly defined investments, I'm not saying that they don't qualify as infrastructure. What I would question is whether or not the federal government should be the one that's making those investments. Is it more appropriate to look at local government? Is it more appropriate to look at the private sector to make those investments? I know if I was a potential uh, employer and having been a working mother myself, I know that one of the key benefits that I would want to offer from, to my employees to make sure that they're happy on the job and we retain their talents when they reach their childbearing years is that we've got you know a program that helps pay for childcare costs. But that's a decision that I make, that's an investment that I make as an employer. And I certainly don't expect the federal government, my state government, the state of Virginia, you know, or Arlington County to provide that for my employees on my behalf.
0: Now, at the risk of really leaning into the economic nerd piece of this <laughs> of this episode, you alluded to earlier to the concept of market failures, one of the areas of market failure you've already explained, which is this idea of externalities. Markets don't do very well. The private sector doesn't do very well when there isn't that straight line connection between costs and benefits. If benefits of something accrue to more than just me, the payer for something, then I am not as interested in paying for it and ditto on the flip side on the cost.
1: And if you can't recoup that, yeah. If you can't recoup the, the, the cost of those external benefits, yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely.
1: So one of
0: the areas that you suggested earlier, where it is a good idea for the federal government with its scope and economies of scale to potentially step in is the specific areas of market failure, but There are also many right answers for how the federal government can do that. And before we went on the air, you suggested that Mitch McConnell, the Senate Minority Leader, has suggested, look, we don't have to do all of these things in traditional ways through traditional federal programs. We could do some of them by incentivizing the private sector more or doing public-private partnerships. What do you make of some of these Alternatives are there multiple and perhaps better pathways to get there. If the end result we want is we want the right amount of investment going into the types of things that will benefit the economy in the future.
1: I mean, I think we've seen examples of where these sort of alternate uh, methods work. I mean, we've seen tax R and D tax credits. We've seen them work. You know, we we've seen public private ventureships build toll roads and and. So yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think all avenues need to be on on the table. I, I and I, I think trying to trying to shove all this into a one size fits all federal government must be all things to all people. That's that's where you run into problems, waste, fraud, abuse, projects to nowhere, projects that are unfinished, projects that that don't you know when you when you're trying to be you know all things to all people, you, you create a a seven-headed Hydra that that doesn't do anything particularly well. It just does a whole bunch of things sort of kind of well. So yes, absolutely. I think there's a role for 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 being creative. And and I would encourage the Biden administration to explore those options.
0: Another aspect that we haven't talked about here, but you've alluded to uh in to some degree is the the debt piece of it. The how are we paying for this? Now, one way of looking at it is look, if this is a long-term investment, it makes some sense. It's, it's justified to do a little bit of deficit spending in, in a given year because the long-term economic payback is worth it. It's certainly better than spending our money on non-productive uses or wasteful projects. We've given some examples here. On the other hand, there is a cost involved here. Now, the Biden administration has proposed paying for these investments by making adjustments to how we tax corporations, principally. What do you make of the entire argument about how and whether we need to pay for these things? Do are, are these investments so worthwhile in terms of our future productivity that we really shouldn't be stressing about the pay-fors right now or if we should be stressing about it are these the right sets of ways to think about paying for them
1: Mm -hmm. so i i guess if if we did not have the structural deficit uh, problems that we have right now i probably wouldn't be so concerned about deficit financing some of these longer lived infrastructure projects knowing how they would help enhance productivity and economic growth. But the problem is we do have these structural problems. And so I think if we're going to talk about deficit financing, future infrastructure, we need to talk about our structural deficits and entitlement uh, programs and revenues right now and fix that house. I will say, however, that I am concerned about how the Biden administration has chosen to finance uh, this huge package. In the past, we've always linked pay for to users. For example, the gas tax has always paid for roads and bridges. Passenger facility fees that are charged on your airline tickets have helped pay for airports. And we've used tolls to pay for bridges and HOV lanes. When he was running for president, President Joe Biden promised not to raise taxes on households earning less than $400,000 a year, which means that the typical mechanisms that I might suggest or that other policy experts might suggest to pay for a project or a package like this, things like an increase in the federal gas tax or a brand new vehicle miles tax, since we know that cars are are much more efficient these days and the gas tax doesn't generate the revenue that it used to, or even a carbon tax. All of those are off the table at this point in time. And I don't think that's appropriate. And frankly, I don't think it's a position that's tenable in the, in the long run. The fact that we're leaning so heavily on wealthy individuals and corporations to finance something that is not you know, directly related to those taxes is problematic. Moreover, you know, from a practical standpoint, I find it, and granted, I am not a CPA or a tax expert, But I read the news and I read the headlines and I see that it is very hard to tax just high net worth individuals and just corporations. Why? Because that money is really mobile. It can move overseas. It can be hidden in different assets. And I just, and and with corporations, they can pass some of those costs down on to individuals, consumers. So I just, I, I, I question you know, with corporations, the ability to carry forward net operating losses, carry forward, carry backwards, you know, and if you're trying to phase in a corporate income tax an increase in the corporate income tax, I don't know how you do that successfully when corporations are able to, to re- revise their books so often and, and move expenses around to game and chase, you know, the lowest tax profit. So I really find the financing of this plan not well thought out from a policy perspective. It was obviously designed to appeal to the masses for political purposes. But I think in terms of public policy, I don't think it's a smart one. Tori Gorman is a policy
0: expert, the policy director for the Concord Coalition. Thank you so much for walking us through how to think about infrastructure investment in our economy.
1: Thanks, Matt, it was great. I had fun today, thanks.